All right, good morning, Hillcrest family. Wonderful to see everybody this morning. Put your hands together and show some love to these wonderful musicians today. They're great. Always a treat to worship the Lord in our church. I love the Lord Jesus Christ and I love my church family. How about you? Amen. We're thankful to be here this morning. A special welcome to those of you who are joining us live in our online broadcast on one of our channels. Uh, thanks for being with us today. Listen, if we can help you or minister to you in any way this morning, you can communicate us now or all through the day using our uh, prayer email, prayer at hillcrestchurch.com, prayer at hillcrestchurch.com, and we'd love to know how we can encourage you, pray with you, <clears throat> bless your life in any way, shape, or form. And those of you that are here today, if we could do the same for you, uh, I or any of our pastors will be happy to pray with you, talk with you for a few minutes between services this morning. Just know that we're grateful that you're here today. Father, we are thankful to be here this morning. What a wonderful, beautiful day that you've made for us. We will rejoice. We have determined to rejoice and to be glad in it, for we have so much to be thankful for. Amen. We're grateful today, Father, for your goodness. We're grateful for the love that you show, even though we don't deserve it. We're thankful that you give us redemption when we deserve judgment. You give us acceptance when we deserve alienation. And today, Father, you give us access when we deserve rejection. And so may we rejoice in knowing that our God is with us, moving among us, and I pray that you'll minister to people's lives wherever they may be, right where they are, in a way that's special and meaningful and in a way that brings about transformation. Would you do that now through your word, Father? We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. amen. Our Bibles are open this morning to Second Chronicles in the Old Testament, the book of Second Chronicles. If you've gone to the book of Psalms, you've gone too far to the right, come back this way. And you'll find uh, First and Second Chronicles, and we're in Second Chronicles 20 this morning. If you need a church Bible, there's one in front of you, and you'll find our text on page 346, 346. And so ever how you can get the Word of God open and before you this morning, whether it's in print or electronically, be sure to do that. We're in a series of messages on spiritual victory. Today we're going to talk about the subject of finding your victory. How do you find it? particularly when the odds are stacked against you. Y'all ever been in a situation in life where the odds were against you and you didn't know how you were gonna come through the given situation? There are times in life when everything and everyone seems to gang up on you at the same time. I don't know about you, but um, when I have challenging times, they usually come in buckets. You know, there's usually a sequence, one right after another, and so most of the time, I'm just saying, when the devil comes after me, he doesn't usually come with a little hangnail here or there, man. He comes in waves. And that's true the more you grow spiritually. We're going to come to one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament that's a highlight of that. In fact, this text was the text I preached in the very first sermon I ever preached when I was about eight years old. Amen. Very first sermon I ever preached was from 2 Chronicles chapter 20. So this story, this Bible story has been making an impact in my life for a long, long time. And the reason that I like it is because it relates a story about a king, a leader, a spiritual guide uh, that had no chance, no chance. Death and destruction staring this man 
right in the face. And yet, guess what happened? He turned his situation over to God. And when he just turned it over to God and let God be God, he is on the receiving end of one of the greatest victories that you find anywhere in the Bible. It's a lengthy passage of scripture, and so I'm not going to take time. It's kind of unusual. I like to read the text beforehand, uh, but it'd take half the sermon for me to read the whole thing. And so I'm just going to walk us through it. That'd be okay with everybody? We stay rooted to it. We're just going to kind of walk through it and get to it as we get to it section by section. You'll notice here in 2 Chronicles 20 in the first verse, it begins with a very simple after this. Now we know from our study of the Bible that a text without a context is a pretext for a proof text. And so what does after this mean? We need to set the context. Well, basically, if you go back and read 2 Chronicles 19, you find that this particular story begins after a great revival had broken out in the kingdom of Judah. Judah had been led through previous wicked, ungodly kings to worship uh, other idols. But then along comes one of the rare good kings in the divided monarchy of Israel, a man named Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat was a good guy, and he led his people to destroy all of those idols that the nation of Israel had been led to embrace, the idols of their pagan neighbors all around them. And Jehoshaphat, this godly king, leads the nation of Israel to return to God. But no sooner does he do that than trouble comes knocking. The Bible says, after this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Mayanites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Isn't it interesting that when things get good for you and me spiritually, is usually the time the devil comes calling. You can count on it, set your clock by it, whatever the case might be. That's true in life. Whenever God is at work, the devil will always sharpen his spear and the devil will always turn up the heat and the devil will always increase the attack. Why? Because spiritual order or spiritual warfare rather is the order of the day until Christ comes again. And when people grow in Christ, when churches grow, in their ministry effectiveness, in their preaching of the gospel, in the growth of the people of God, then trouble is always gonna come knocking and usually that's when the devil brings out the big guns. That's what happens here. Jehoshaphat is told by his reconnaissance scouts that a coalition of three enemy armies, not one, not two, but a coalition of three enemy armies is coming from across the Jordan River, the other side of the Jordan, against Israel to make war on the king. So what you have is one puny army against three national armies who had all joined forces together in a coalition, and their purpose was singular, kind of like the purpose that still exists in the Middle East today. We want to drive this nation into the sea. They wanted to eradicate the threat of Israel once and for all. So the threat is very real. The American astronaut Edward White was the first man to go outside of a space capsule on what we call a spacewalk. Edward White was the first American to walk in space. And he did that while he was aboard the Gemini 4 mission, June the 3rd, 1965. Your pastor was two years old. Can I have an amen this morning? And the, the reporter one time asked him after that mission was over and the astronauts had returned safely to Earth as heroes, 
A reporter asked him in a press conference, what would your reaction have been had that cord snapped? The cord that was connecting you with the Gemini spacecraft, the cord that was supplying you oxygen. What would you have done if that cord snapped? And his response was classic. All he said was, well, it would not have made my day. Isn't that great? And let me just say this morning with that in mind, Jehoshaphat was feeling like his cord had snapped, that his oxygen supply was cut off. Have you ever felt that way? Where the pressure was so great, you found you actually had trouble breathing? You felt like an elephant was sitting on your chest? Let me just say, when the messenger gave the report, it did not make Jehoshaphat's day when he found out that these superior forces were all coming after him. And it raises the question for our purposes this morning, what did the man do? How did he respond as he's staring defeat squarely in the eye? What was the result? And what does this have to do with me 3,000 years or so after the fact? What does this have to do with me and the battles that I face in life? Well, the first thing that I want you to notice that Jehoshaphat did that you and I should do as well is wherever we encounter these types of situations when the odds are squarely against us, that we need to learn to focus on the Lord and not on the problem. The first thing that the devil will try to get you to do is just to be consumed with the issue, to become consumed with the problem so that the problem overwhelms everything else in all of life. Look with me here in verse number three. Then Jehoshaphat was what? Say it out loud. Afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. Now, the first thing you're going to notice is the man was fearful. Uh, The word here that's translated afraid is a word that means simply to fear. I think the New International Version translates it, Jehoshaphat was alarmed, which is a good way to translate it. He was alarmed in a serious kind of way which was a perfectly natural reaction. You'd have been fearful too if you'd have been in his position and saw what he saw and knew what was coming. The issue at hand is not that he was afraid. The issue is what did the man do with his fear? To quote one of the greatest theologians of all time, the great John Wayne. (laughs) He said, courage is being afraid, but saddling up anyway. Amen. That's a good word because that's kind of what Jehoshaphat did. What did he do with his fear? I mean, did, did he collapse? Did, did he surrender? Did he go running for the medicine cabinet? No, the Bible says that the king set his face to seek the Lord. See, don't miss that. That was the wisest thing he could do. And then he proclaimed a national fast. Let's all get before the Lord and let's do it in an urgent kind of way, which is what fasting is, right? I mean, there come a time, you may not feel led, the Baptists are not good at fasting. We're better at eating than we are at fasting. Let's just call it like it is. But there'll come a time where you'll do whatever you need to do to know that you have God's undivided attention. And fasting is one of the spiritual disciplines where you seek to do that. You set everything else aside as unimportant, including food. You fast and you pray. And that just simply means that it was his priority to seek the heart of God. 
It was his priority to seek God's perspective, to seek the peace that passes understanding that can only come to somebody who comes to the conclusion, yes, I believe it, God is in control even of this mess that I'm in the middle of. And he does that, by the way, as a first response, not as a last resort. I believe in 911 prayers. I think they can be effective. But if that's all you do is dial up 911 prayers, you're a pretty spiritually shallow person. And most of the time, your 911 prayers are only as powerful as your everyday prayer life has been up to that point. And so he makes this a first response, not a last resort. And he asks God three questions that we need to ask when the odds are against us and we need a victory. Here are the three questions. You ought to write them down. He looks at God and he asks, as you're going to see here in a second, are you not, did you not, will you not? You got it? Are you not, did you not, will you not? Notice this. The first thing you need to do when the odds are against you is to remind yourself who God is. Verse six is very clear. Jehoshaphat said, O Lord, God of our fathers, and what's the next three words? Out loud, please. Are you not? Are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. I'd just like to know if y'all believe that this morning. Y'all believe that about God? You'll never make it through life's difficult circumstances unless you come to believe that right there. And Jehoshaphat just needed to pray that. He needed to pray it as a reminder. Because listen, when your obstacle is big, it's important that you remember God is bigger. God is bigger. God is bigger than the problem. God is bigger than the obstacle. And never forget, your reaction in a crisis reveals to everybody around you just how big or how small your God actually is. Do you worship a big God or do you worship a small God? That's the, that's the question of the hour. Our God, the Bible says, is creator God. He is Lord of heaven and earth ruler over everything. Our God sustains everything, holding all things together by the might of the power of his right hand. And I'm just telling you this morning that our God can overcome any and everything because the scripture makes it clear, nothing shall be impossible with God. So you remind yourself who God is. But then secondly, you remember what God has done. Not only did Jehoshaphat ask, are you not? He also asked, did you not? Verse seven, did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? They're coming to take your land. Did you not promise it to those with whom you were in covenant relationship for all time, without limits, without boundaries? Listen, when you're, facing a challenging time, one of the ways you'll get through it is by remembering it, uh, remembering how God has bailed you out of other times that happened before. And see, here's the thing. There've been other times you just don't remember them at the moment. There've been other times that you needed God and God showed. This is one advantage of writing stuff down. You know, some of y'all are better journal, and I'm not the greatest journaler in the world. I have seasons of journaling, but I got a lot of journals that I've written in over time. 
And I, I tend to write stuff, especially big stuff that God does. This is an advantage of writing it down because you can return to events. I keep my journals up on my desk at home in, in a little row between some bookends. And there are times that I'll go in there and just start reading. And I'm amazed at being reminded of things that God has done in my life. See, this is an important exercise. You go before the Lord, and really you don't remind the Lord who's omniscient and never forgets anything, but you remind yourself, did you not? Did God not do this in my life? And has God not shown up <clears throat> in my life time and time again? So you remind yourself who God is, you remember what God has done, and then third, you need to request God to do something. I mean, I've said before, one of my greatest questions, uh, one of the greatest questions, my favorite questions that Jesus asked in the Bible, and Jesus asked a lot of questions, not because he needed somebody to tell him an answer, but he's trying to get other people to think. But he looks at blind Bartimaeus, who's screaming out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus comes up to him and asks him one of the greatest questions asked in the Bible. What do you want me to do for you? And so listen, if you're going to take time to pray, maybe you should answer that question to God because God is saying, what do you want me to do for you? There comes a time when you need to request God to do something. As the king remembers <clears throat> what God has done, basically what Jehoshaphat wants is for God to do it again. And that's verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not? There's the will you not. Will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes, oh, this is good. Our eyes are what? On you. See, what did the king want? Instant replay. That's what he wants. He pulled out his journal. Oh, yeah, this is what God did here. And here's what God did. Here's how God brought home the victory. It wasn't the way we thought it would happen, but boy, God was in control the whole time. He wanted another demonstration of the power of God. And that's the way you pray. You pray for God to give you a breakthrough when the odds are against you. And to get there, you remind yourself who God is. You remind yourself how God has worked throughout redemptive history. And this is why we have the Bible. Because the Bible is kind of God's journal to write stuff down about how he has worked in ways over centuries and centuries. And so if you get a steady diet of God's word, you're gonna see how God has acted and how God has responded in myriads of times when odds were stacked against the very people of God. So remind yourself who God is, what God has done, and the tremendous power of God to intervene in your life no matter what it is. Are you not? Did you not? Will you not? You focus on the Lord and not the problem. Y'all with me? Say amen. amen. And then a second thing that I love uh, out of this passage of Scripture is that it teaches us when the odds are against us to acknowledge our inabilities but God's capabilities. You acknowledge your inability and God's capability. Again, notice verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. 
Now, if you're taking notes this morning, circle the word, either in your Bible or in your notes, circle the word powerless, because that's the key word there. For we are powerless against this great horde. And there is an implied word uh, that's in there as well. It's not explicitly used, but boy, it's right in there. And that is the word ignorant. We are powerless and we are ignorant. We do not know what to do. Anybody ever been there before? You see, we all have in some way, shape, or form. That was Jehoshaphat's honest assessment. We're weak and we are ignorant. And listen, you gotta come to that point. I mean, if you want God to show up and God to work in power and you need a breakthrough, you need to recognize there is never a breakthrough spiritually until there's first brokenness. You have to acknowledge who you are and who you're not. And you have to acknowledge who God is. You have to realize you can't overcome impossible odds in your own strength. You're not that strong. You're not that uh, creative. You're not that good. Uh, Jehoshaphat looked out and he saw what the scholars call the armies of the Transjordan. They're on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Jerusalem was on the western side of the Jordan River. And he knew he didn't have a chance. We're powerless against this great horde. So he willingly acknowledges his inability, but he still needed assurance. He still needed an answer. And you know where he got it? Okay, this is going to blow your mind. You know where the king got his spiritual answer that he needed. You know how God provided it to him? Through the counsel of the worship pastor. I know that's almost impossible for you to believe. (laughs) But it's the gospel truth. And the counsel that the worship pastor gives him was spot on. Verse 14. And the spirit of the Lord came upon Jehoshiel, the son of Zechariah, a Levite of the son of Asaph in the midst of the assembly. So they gathered them all together. And notice the prophecy that he delivers to the king beginning in verse 15. Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours, but God's. Verse 17, you will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position, And see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. O Judah and Jerusalem, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. I'm just telling you, that guy's one of the coolest customers that you find in the Bible. And he delivers this all-important message to the king leader, exactly what he needed to hear. And what was the message? The battle's not yours, the battle belongs to God. You will not need to lift a finger in this battle. Because remember, the king's wringing his hands wondering, what what should I do? What should I do? And I'm just telling you, if you're like me, when somebody, even a trusted counselor comes to you and says, don't do anything, it's hard to hear that. Because we're geared to start doing stuff. Start making phone calls, start networking, start calling the doctor, start calling the banker, whatever. We're geared to go into action. And yet the counsel here is you're not going to lift a finger. You're not going to need to lift a finger because the battle doesn't really belong to you. 
This is God's battle to fight. You know why so many of us are constantly discouraged? I mean, any discouraged people in the room today? Any sick people in the room today? Any worn out people in the room? Anybody sick and tired of being sick and tired? Amen. I mean, you know why so many of us are like that? Because we can't help but to try to play God. I mean, that's the honest truth. We walk around trying to hold up the world, trying to bear the weight of the world on our own shoulders, trying to solve all of our own problems, challenges, and you've got all these friends come to you and family members, and you feel like you've got to solve their problems too. It's no wonder that we're discouraged, sick, tired, and sick and tired of being sick and tired. But I say it again, God says, if that's what you want to do, go right ahead and do it. God's not going to stop you from doing that. He's not going to stop you from trying to be the world's policeman because he knows that eventually you'll get tired of doing that. You'll find that you really can't do that and you'll become broken enough to realize that if it's going to happen, God's going to have to do it. It's like the old Star Trek episodes. I've watched them all a hundred times through the years and there'll be times when Captain Kirk, you know, gets on the it gets on the whatever they call that intercom system, and he goes down to engineering, and he talks to uh, engineering officer Scott, and he asks him, "I got to have more. I got to have more. We need to do this." And Scott looks at him and says, "I'm not a miracle worker." The problem is, many of God's people think they are, and you're not. And so maybe you should resign as Prime Minister of Heaven and Earth. That'd be a good place to start. And here's the thing, when you do that, the world's not gonna fall apart. In fact, what's likely to happen is when you hand those reins over to God, when you hand those spreadsheets over to God, when you hand those medical records over to God, when you hand those resumes over to God, when you hand those grade reports over to God, what will happen is everything will not fall apart, but there instead will be this wave of peace and contentment and dare I say it, even relaxation without any pills as you relinquish control of what God never intended you to have. And that is ultimate responsibilities for the battles of your life. Now, Here's, here's the deal. There's stuff for you to do. I'm not saying that you just, you know, collapse on your couch and pull up the Afghan and just say it'll all work out. No, there's stuff we got to do. You have to fulfill your responsibility. So this isn't an excuse for laziness, spiritual or otherwise. But I'm telling you, God gives us, listen, God gives us the whole armor of God and you got to be the one to put it on. And so you do your part. You put on the full armor of God and you engage in the spiritual disciplines and you do the appropriate planning and you take care to eat well and do all of those things that the experts tell you that you need to do. Yeah, there's stuff to do. But then once you've strapped on the whole armor of God, what does Paul say? Having done all, just stand. Just stand. There's not a call to advance. Three times in that passage, or four even. Stand, stand, withstand, stand. Stand firm. And those who learn to do that are the ones that learn to walk in victory.
Because victory comes to those who recognize their inability and hand those inabilities over to God, recognizing their inadequacy, but God's total adequacy. Their insufficiency, but God's all-sufficiency. I'm just saying the scriptures mean it. The battle is not yours ultimately, but the Lord's. Everybody's still hanging with me. And so this is what we learn. We focus on the Lord and not the problem. We acknowledge our inability and God's capability. But then thirdly, we, we learn that victory comes to those who make worship a way of life. Yet you make worship a way of life. This is really an incredible story. Because remember, on one side, you've got three enemy nations. They're masked. They're ready. They're tasting the blood of this thorn in their side, the nation of Israel. On the other side, there is the little runt of a litter nation of Israel with its king who's alarmed and uncertain. But this alarmed and fearful king is wise enough to spend time with the Lord. And as he spends time with the Lord, Jehoshaphat comes up with a battle plan. <laughs> it's a battle plan that is no battle plan, which is what makes it remarkable. Look at verse 21. And when he had taken counsel with the people, he appointed those who were to sing to the Lord and praise him in holy attire as they went before the army and say, give thanks to the Lord for his steadfast love endures forever. I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, their battle clothing was like the clothing that we're gonna, many of us are gonna be wearing next Sunday on Easter Sunday. I mean, they just put their Easter Sunday clothing on to go out to battle. No battle fatigues, no camo, no armor, no helmets, no anything like that. It says that they put on holy attire. And the strategy was to just start praising the Lord. You say, you gotta be kidding me. No, that's what it is. Jehoshaphat comes to his troops and said, here's the deal, we're outnumbered at least three to one, so here's the battle plan. I want the ministers of music, the praise team, and the choir out front. <laughs> to which I say, amen. <laughs> I'm right behind y'all. Let's go. Bring, y'all bring your tambourines and bring your horns and strap on your acoustic guitars and then just start singing that song. Give thanks to the Lord our God and King. His love endures forever. For he is good. He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise. Sing praise. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. And you know what's amazing is that choir and praise team, worship leaders, they don't bat an eye. They don't argue. They don't say, what you talking about, king? None of that stuff. Which is a symbol of trust. Trust. I mean, in an age where nobody trusts anybody, you gotta have trust to live in victory. And they got great trust. They got trust in God. They got trust in their king. And really what they were doing was they were just going to go out and thank God in advance of the victory. And that's really what praise is. You know what praise is? Verbalized faith. It's verbalized faith. <clears throat> praise is thanking God in advance. And the Bible speaks of having 
this attitude of praise is part of your life. First Thessalonians 5, 16 and following. Rejo- you know it. Rejoice. Say it together with me. Together. Rejoice always. Uh, pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And that's another uh, reminder that whatever happens in your life, never stop praising the Lord. I've said this a hundred times through the year. The first response of most people when they're in a difficult situation is not to go to God for guidance and direction. And it certainly is not to praise God anyway. It's to get angry with God and run from him. That's what most people do. Take my ball. I'm angry with God. God's mean to me. He hadn't removed all pain from my life. He will not do it. That will never happen. Well, it will happen, but you got to like die for it to happen. Because that's when heaven comes into play. As long as you're alive and breathing in a broken world, <clears throat> you're never going to have a pain-free, stress-free, anxiety-free life. But you can still live in victory over all that anyway. If you have a right attitude toward God and a right walk with the Lord. No, you never stop praising the Lord. Why not? Because where there is no praise, there is no power. You say, well, it's just too hard to praise the Lord right now. You don't know what I'm going through. No, I don't know what you're going through. But let me ask you this. Is what you're going through more desperate than what Jehoshaphat was going through? I mean, is life and death in your life any more on the line than it was not only for this king, but for everyone in this kingdom? Is your situation any more desperate than it was for Paul and Silas? when their feet were in stocks in that Philippian jail and they didn't know whether it was temporary or whether it was going to be ultimately a death sentence. And yet what happens when we open our Bibles to Acts chapter 16 and we read about this incredible imprisonment experience, what do we find Paul and Silas doing? Opening up their mouth in the midst of the jail, in the midst of the stocks, in the midst of the dirtiness and the filth And they're singing hymns of praise to God. Which, by the way, is exactly what the Lord Jesus Christ was doing as he left the upper room with his disciples on his way to Gethsemane and the cross. He was still singing, still praising. And you know, for Paul and Silas, it was at that point the prison doors kind of flew open. And the Lord set them free. Why? Because I'm just saying there's power in praise. And so, y'all, man, we got to get over this business. I just don't feel like coming to church. I don't feel like praising the Lord. I don't feel like staying connected. You got to get over that and you got to do it anyway because that's where the power comes from. And unless you're living in the power of the presence of Jesus Christ and in the fellowship of the people of God, you'll not have a high likelihood that you'll ever live in the victory of Jesus Christ either. Now, let's notice three results as we prepare our hearts to take the Lord's Supper. Three results of praising and thanking God even when the odds are against you. First of all, you find there's total victory. Total victory. That's verse 22. And when they began to sing and praise, the Lord set an ambush against the men of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah so that they were what? 
routed. For the men of Ammon and Moab rose against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, devoting them to destruction. And when they had made an end of the inhabitants of Seir, they all helped to destroy one another. Can you imagine? Let me tell you what happened here. The Spirit of God sent absolute confusion among those enemies of God. And they ended up just turning on one another. So the music minister was right. You're not gonna have to lift a finger against these people. So Israel just goes out praising the Lord and it's the midst of the praise that the power comes from on high. God throws these enemy armies into such confusion that they forgot about Israel, turned on one another, and the result was total destruction. Israel didn't even have to lift a finger. Second, there was material blessing. Not only did the people of Israel just stand there and watch what was happening in front of them, but when it was over, notice what happens in verse 25. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil, they found among them in great numbers goods, clothing, precious things, which they took for themselves until they could carry no more. They were three days in taking the spoil. It was so much. And on the fourth day, they assembled in the valley of Barakah, for there they <clears throat> blessed the Lord. With all of this material, and it is a word, all this material booty that they took from the enemy, pagan enemies, they took it, brought it in the kingdom, acknowledged it as a blessing, and used it for the glory of God. Somebody's asked me many times through the years, if somebody in your church won the lottery, would you take a tithe on it? What do you think? <laughs> right here. What do I care where it came from? Devils had that money long enough. <laughs> Amen. It's money. And I know how it can be used in ways that advance the kingdom and honor the king. And that's what happened. I mean, isn't that so typical of God? He removes their obstacle and then leaves a wake of blessing behind. So much plunder. It took three days to collect it all. And then they went to the valley of Barakah. You know what Barakah means in Hebrew? Blessing. They took all that stuff to the valley of blessing. Why did they do that? Because they knew that's exactly what it was. And that's what happens when you make praise part of your life. You live in the valley of blessing, even though times get very painful. And that's where we want to be. And then finally, there was public testimony. There was material blessing, total victory, public testimony. Verse 29, and the fear of God came upon all the kingdoms of the countries when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And so the realm of Jehoshaphat was quiet for his God gave him rest all around. You know, when you let God fight your battles and when the victory comes, other people are going to take notice, aren't they? They're going to want to know what's going on in your life. Why, how are you staying so calm? How, how come you're not losing your mind? Man, I'd be losing my, my wits 
How do you do it? Your victory is meant by God, not for you to hoard, but to share. A testimony of encouragement. It's a testimony of encouragement when God brings you to the victory. It's a testimony of encouragement to your church family. It's a testimony of faith to those unsaved friends, neighbors, and associates you know that need to know the Lord. I'm just saying the world takes notice when Christians actually live by faith. Amen. When you live by faith, people are going to know it. And that's one reason why you need to let God fight your battles. Because God has a desire in terms of how he wants to use your life. He wants to use you and he wants to use me as a channel of faith and a channel of blessing so that your life is impactful for those who need to know him as Savior and Lord. God is not out to make a name for you and he's not out to make a name for me, but he is out through you and me to make a great name for himself in a world that needs to know God. And so let him, let him draw people, not to you, but through you, let him draw people unto him. Y'all got it this morning? Say amen. Amen. When the odds are against you, focus on the Lord, not the problem. Acknowledge your inability, but God's capability. And learn to make worship, not just a one time a week thing or a two time, learn to make praise and worship a regular spiritual daily part of your life. And then when you do that, what does God tell us to do? Stand firm. Stand firm in the strength and in the grace and in the mighty power of God. And when you do all, God will be true to his word and he will in his way and his time bring home the victory. Of this, you can be sure because the promises of God are true and rich and he will never fail us. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen.